Good morning and good afternoon and good evening. Whenever, whatever you hear this show, I'd like to welcome you to uh, Talking Antiques. And this is your host, Paul Perdue. And I have my executive producer, Matt, here. And I have to say to everybody out there that only for Matt, he has really kept me on the straight and narrow and helped me with uh, my programming. And I seem to be getting a little bit better, but I don't think I'm getting better because of me. I think I'm getting better because of Matt. So thank you very much, Matt. Oh, you're very welcome. And how are you today? I'm doing very well. Uh, do you feel a little bit more secure in your new job? In my new job? Yeah, this is the most secure job I've got. Oh, great, great. <laughs> Producing Talking Antiques. <laughs> <laughs> great. And um, I just would like to say a cave meal of fault to everybody out there, which is Irish for... A uh, hundred thousand welcomes, and I hope you will come and join every show that I do. Be talking a little bit about everything. Could be talking about, oh, I don't know, about the weather one day, and call should, it antique weather. Should I should I give the Irish greeting that we were talking about before we? Came oh, I there? don't think so. That That's that might be censored. That might be censored. The only one I know. Uh, when everybody gets uh, when everybody gets sort of uh, into the show and start and you know we'll throw out the odd one and see does anybody pick it up we'll have a bit of fun with that. No, I like having a secure job. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, well the secure job. Is dead. Okay, we'll leave that last one out then. And uh, so before we get really into the show, uh, we're you know we, you are listening to it on thirteen fifty WCGM, which is independent national radio, and you can hear it on the TuneIn app. And I also have it podcasted uh, on my Facebook page, which is Talking Antiques. And, you know, people have been sending me messages. They haven't actually sent one actually out to the Facebook page because they're afraid that maybe that the question might look stupid. And, you know, so it's been sent to me privately. But I don't mind how I get them. And uh, I just thank everybody for, you know, listening and helping me build up my show. Of course... Because of that, I need to really thank Village Antiques, because Village Antiques are my sponsors of the show. And, you know, if you're around Biltmore Village, you must go into Village Antiques, talk to David and talk to Terry, and they will definitely, definitely help you. And there was a new girl there called Ginger, and uh, she was very helpful to me the last time I was in when I was looking for some stuff. And you will find everything from paintings to furniture to pottery to jewelry, silver, gold, you name it. They have it. So go on into Village Antiques, which is on 755 Biltmore Avenue, Asheville. And they also have a website called villageantiquesonline.com. And just tell them the Irishman sent you. So let's sort of get this little bit of a show on the road. The last time, the last show we were talking about, it was a little bit about uh, about marquetry, and um, you know, I just I I was sort of uh, saying that I would bring a little bit back onto it again, and we would talk about it. So, people are saying, "Well, what do you want to be talking about marquetry when you're talking antiques?" Well, it's very important to understand that marquetry basically has been involved in furniture from oh, way back to the. You know, the Egyptians' times, they started it. 
nobody really knows where it exactly comes from, but it has been known and has been seen at the tombs out of Egypt, where they use copper saws to cut the cut the wood to about a quarter of an inch, and uh, by doing that, they also they also shined it and smoothed it down with stones, uh, you know that that. Uh, Sort of like a pumice stone or a stone like that that really brought down the edge of it. And um, the the oldest the oldest known panel of of marquetry known or the earliest known panel of marquetry known uh, was made in Germany Germany in about eighteen sixty eighteen sixty three, and uh, apparently it still survives and it is beautiful. It's sort of like what they call seawood marquetry. And it was on a panel on a big uh, on a big sort of uh, bookcase, sort of like the Germans had always went in for big stuff, probably made out of walnut, probably made out of oak, something like that. And uh, then, in sort of like over the next few centuries, marketry schools were established in France, Germany, and Holland. And of course, during the sixteenth to the eighteenth centuries, it got more exquisite, more delicate. A lot of people don't understand that in the old days, when you became, you know, when you became a carpenter, or when you became a, a you know, a cabinet maker, something like that, you had to spend so many years learning your trade. You didn't get paid for it. You had to pay the, <laughs> you had to pay the man to to teach you how to do that. But in marketry. It, it it was a seven year course, so it it you know you go and you learn French polishing, you go you do your cabinet making, make furniture, whatever. It was seven years, and then you were allowed to go and be a journeyman and go out and and earn uh, earn your your wage. But in marquetry, it was different. You particularly in France, you had to you had to do it for seven years and then give three years, uh, free of charge to the to the man, and then. You had to give ten years of your time before you were accepted to be a marketerian, and then at, after that, you might have had ten years of good life left in your eyes to do marketry. So marketry was really a, an exceptionally difficult skill. It was all done by hand. Uh, nowadays, they do it by laser. And it, it uh, in North in North Italy, where they did, they started it really doing a lot. They used to have little villages all around where you'd start at one end of the village and somebody would make a table leg or a, or a cupboard or a drawer and then somebody would cut out the marquetry and, and, and it would sort of like a conveyor line, one house to the next, to the next, to the next, till at the end of the street there was a piece of furniture. And, that, and, and that's what they used to do. And in some places they still do that, I don't know. But I, 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 won't be, I won't be held accountable for not being true on that one. But in the old days that was the way it was done. And then it got into England. And when it got into England, how it got into England was that the, the Dutch immigrants that came over brought over uh, their marketry skills. Or they were called inlayers rather than marketarians. And uh, they brought over a style called Dutch marketry, which was sort of like boxwood or uh, sycamore or, or chestnut, uh, which is the light-colored wood against walnut, mahogany, well, more so walnut. And uh, that's how they got into it. And then it's sort of the English sort of said, "Well, this this looks good. I think we could make money on this." And the English started getting into it. And uh, some really very very good marketries come out of England from 
you know, the middle of the 1700s, all the way up to 1911, where you get the Edwardian period. And then the French really were the killers of marquetry. When you have tortoiseshell and, and brass inlay, um, there was a Charles Boulle was created this, this uh, particular style of brass, uh, ivory and shell and all of that for the king, the king of France, one of the, or two of the kings. And uh, his son was also a, an absolutely genius for doing that. So marquetry has a great, great history. And, you know, you can join the marketry society. There's an American marketry society. I think they're based up in Canada. And then, of course, you have the English one. Of course, the English one is, the, you know, the, they claim to be the best. But, you know, being Irish, I will always go with the, the American or the Canadian one first before I go with the English one. But I was in it when I was living in Ireland. And it's a great way of learning how to learn about the history of marketry and understanding uh, what... Uh, what you have to do when you're looking at marketry and and uh, on the way it is put together, and always remember that marketry is a fine art and an antique in itself. So we're looking. You're listening to this on 1350 WZGM Independent National Radio, and you can also listen to us on the podcast. You can listen to us on the TuneIn app. And uh, go to my Facebook page, Talking Antiques. And uh, when you have any questions or anything like that, please do not hesitate. And we will come back after the break and we will continue our stories. Welcome back to Talking Antiques, and this is your host, Paul Perdue, and uh, Cave Mila Fulcher again. Matt is actually playing some Irish music, and if you hear tapping on the floor, that's me. You know, that's just me tapping my foot. Yeah, can't be Irish if you don't tap your feet to good music. Uh, just to recap, on the first part of the show, we talked about marketry and, and its influence on, on furniture, which really you know, covers about 400 years and it's still being done today. And, uh, you know, I also want to thank Village Antiques for being my sponsor. And, of course, you're listening to us on 1350 WZGM, Independent National Radio, and I have a talking page, a Facebook page called Talking Antiques. Please go on it and tell me what you think about the show and give me your questions. And uh, let's get started and let us do a little bit about uh, clocks. I think I'm going to change the clocks. And somebody says, well, why do you want to talk about clocks? Well, clocks have been around for five, six, seven hundred years. Well, five anyway. And, uh, you know, there's so many different clocks. There's so many different clocks around there that you could talk about. You know, we have mantle clocks. We have carriage clocks. We have grandfather clocks. We have wagged wall clocks. Cuckoo clocks. We have... Uh, Drone clocks, we have, uh, well, whatever else clocks do we have? Oh, yeah, we have uh, Vienna clocks and uh, multiple, multiple types of clocks. 
And I just sort of talked, thought, thought, thought I would give a little bit about, uh, talk a little bit about them today. And, uh, you know, one of the stories, you know, this is another story from the old sod. One of the stories was I used to have, uh, I, I had an antique shop in, in Dublin, and of course I had one in Carrigan Shannon, and I had one in uh, Longford. Not all at the same time, but every time I moved around. And I had this uh, person that used to come over from, from America and buy clocks, and all he did was bought American clocks, and it fascinated him why he had to come to Ireland to buy the clocks. He could get them cheaper than he could buy in America. And he would ask me, why is that? And I didn't know. And, uh, of course, every time I moved, he followed. He, he'd find me. And, you know, when times are lean, like in the wintertime, anybody in the antique business knows that January, February are not good months. And he would definitely come over that time. And it would, uh, it would help my bank balance a bit and pay my rent and feed me. So, I'd, you know, I'm heavier now than I was then. And it still fascinated him. For, uh, you know, nobody seemed to know. So I decided I'll do a little bit of research into this, and um, you know, I was nobody knew why there was more American clocks over here, till I got talking to my grandfather, and my grandfather had a clock, and you were not allowed to touch this clock. It was in the parlor room, and it was an eight-day clock, and every Sunday night at around uh, at twelve. 25 well at 11:55 he would wind up this clock and it was 15 turns of the key not 16 not 14 15 he was very very meticulous and he would put the key away where nobody knew but everybody knew where the the key was but we pretended that we didn't know and uh, so come uh, Sunday, Saturday evening, coming up Sunday evening, just before midnight, he would wind up the clock. And that would get him to the next Sunday. He'd wind up the clock again. And it was an American clock. It was a mantle clock. I didn't actually, at the time, I didn't know it was an American clock. I thought it was a marble clock. And it turned out to be simulated marble. It was wood made to look like marble. It had the Corinthian columns on it and the the round dial and he would go in every time and he'd move the hand a fraction just to keep it look at his pocket watch and keep it going. And uh I would go in and I'd watch him wind it up and wind it up and and I said to him, but I was getting older now and he'd still do it. You know, oh, up to the day, up to the week before he died, uh, he he wound that clock up. That was one of his things. So I said to to him, Grandma, I said, where did you get the clock? And he said, well, my mother had the clock, or your great-grandmother had had the clock. And it came from her brother that was in America. And I said, okay, that's an interesting story. Why did he send the clock over to America? And he said, well... You do understand that the parlor room was where you brought in all your guests. And one of the most important things to have in a parlor room in Ireland was a clock. So all the people, so the story was that all the people that went to America and started making it, the one thing, the first thing they sent back, apart from money, was a clock. So that they, they could put it into the room, bring their neighbors in and show off the, you know, look at the clock. And... It really fascinated me. So I eventually got around to telling my friend what, uh, the, 
my uh, guy that bought the clock said, so well, the reason was that when the famine Irish went over, when they began to get jobs and all, the first thing they did was sent over a clock. And he was fascinated. He was fascinated about that. And I was able to buy these clocks. One of the clocks that I used to love to buy was a Jerome clock. And, um, you know, they could, it, OG clocks, which was sort of like a shelf clock. They called them a shelf clock. Put it up, but it had two weights on it. And they were either a 30-hour clock or an eight-day clock. And um, the weights would, you'd wind it up, and the weights would go down each side of it, and then you'd wind it back up and it'd go up. And very simple. And when they were made, they were, you know, when they were made in the in the 1800s and so forth, they would, they cost about seven dollars a pop. And then the next year, the guy was so good at selling them uh, that you know they went down to four dollars, four and a half dollars. And he made clocks that were selling for seventy-five cents a piece. He was making made millions of them. But his invention on these clocks was that up until that time, the brass mechanics were casted and he came up with a procedure to uh, metal press you know press the the parts out which made them longer lasting and these clocks are still going around over 100 150 years ago they were never designed to last that long which shows uh, what what the the great innovation of american clock this guy ended up like some of the people that we talked about ended up penniless at the end he died a pauper because he bought a company uh, a clock company uh, by a man called burn uh, jb burnham i think it was and the clock uh, that company was going into trouble and the next minute bang he lost everything but he came up with some great ideas and some great things that are still in the mechanics in the brass movement of clocks today are still used and like the open escapement and the uh, thing but we'll get into that more in the next couple of shows because that's more technical stuff of course and some of the shows that we we will be doing in the future will be about restoration about um you know how to protect your clocks what you do also about what to do with your furniture if if you have antique furniture what to do with your paintings you know how to keep your paintings clean and i'll i'll throw out a little teaser while we're waiting here how do you clean a wa- uh, an aisle painting mat it's instead of sending it to uh, somebody that really does it professionally? I'm thinking not Windex on a washcloth. No, but an onion or a potato. Really? Yeah. Then, and if you cut the onion in half and just uh, go over the, your aisle painting with it, you will be amazed how much dirt you will take off with an onion. And so we will talk about that again. That's just a little teaser now for a couple of shows down the road. I have to really concentrate, make sure I get get them right and give out the right information so that people don't destroy anything. And, you know, we are talking about this on 1350 WZGM, Independent National Radio. And we're, you know, on the Facebook page. I'd like to just thank uh, Village Antiques for being my sponsor again for this uh, for this show and only for them. We would not be up and running and Matt wouldn't have that permanent job he's talking about. So listen to us on Talking Antiques. Give us your, or on Talking Antiques on the radio. Talk to us about it on the Facebook page. Listen to us on the podcast. And we will definitely look forward to seeing you at the next show. So when you're out there, happy hunting, happy treasure hunting. And we'll look forward to seeing you at the next show. Bye.